Welcome once again to the Republican Professor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lucas J. Mather. You can call me Luke or you can call me Butthead, whatever you want to call me. We're here again discussing the topic of uh, theological ethics and politics with our special guest, Helmut Tilika, longtime professor of theology at the University of Hamburg in Germany. Uh, now, Professor Tilika joins us today once again through his teaching in Theological Ethics, Politics, is the volume two. Uh, my copy is uh, published by Fortress University, or sorry, Fortress Press in uh, 1969. So thank you to Fortress Press for making this available. And we make fair use of, of uh, Professor Tilika's teaching here through a transformative uh, performance, performative reading, uh, because Professor Tilika unfortunately died before he could come on the podcast with us. And uh, someone is going to probably look up when he died, and you're going to see he died in 1986 when West Germany was still West Germany and there was still an East Germany. And I'm going to point out to you that 1986 is before he was able to come on the podcast. I just point that out to you. So we're picking up from where we left off last time, and I'm making some scholarly commentary on uh, uh, performative reading here, a transformative use of his, uh, and a fair use of his material here. He's got a chapter, chapter two, recall, called The Transition from Authoritarian to Democratic Thinking. And we covered the concept of authority in Luther and Paul last time. And we have a shorter time today because we did a lot of the heavy lifting last time. So we'll have a shorter time. We went a little bit long last time. Um, where we're headed is his next chapter. And the topic there is ideological tyranny, what he calls the totalitarian state in Soviet doctrine. And then he talks about the concept of ideology and the concept of the ideological superstructure. This is a wonderful chapter. He talk, he gets into um, propaganda. And I think that you'll be interested in this material at least i am and if you're weird like me you will be interested uh, for example here's a subsection in his chapter called the pragmatism and idolatry of the ideologies ideologies as idolatry um so fascinating stuff now uh, let's do a performative reading of the last part of his chapter two, and we'll make some scholarly commentary so that it's a fair use of his material. Um, 
and we'll have some discussion about this. And again, check out Fortress Press, their materials. They publish a wide variety of uh, books that are wonderful. Uh, check out their catalog. You can go to uh, fortresspress.org, uh, I believe it is. Um, and you can Google it and you'll find it and you'll find the catalog and they have a lot of wonderful titles. So support the work that Fortress Press does. And I would highly recommend that you buy your own copy of this book. Buy a hard copy, have it in your library. I'm on page 16 of a Theological Ethics Politics by Helmut Tielicke. So it's called Divine Creation and Human Control in Government. Here's Tielicke, and I'm quoting here. We will first fix the decisive geometric points for the line we are about to draw. The following theses are taking, taken from Luther's theology. Now, make a comment. He wrote this in German originally. It was translated into English. This copy is edited by William H. Lazarus. And I'm not sure if he translated it himself or, or not. I don't see a translator. Okay, here we go. First... It is the fall that leads to man's self-destruction. It makes of men raging beasts. It produced a, produces a centrifugal, centrifugal tendency which drives men apart from one another. Witness the fratricide of Cain and the dispersion at Babel. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the very first chapters of Genesis in the Old Testament, the fall. That's the theological category he's using there to introduce government. Second, this is Tielica again. God puts a stop to this self-destruction in order to give man a kairos, a space in which to repent, and that kairos is in Greek. I, I'm fortunate I can read it. That's a, a kairos is a time, a space in which to repent. He sets over the world after the flood a rainbow of reconciliation, giving it a new constitution in the Noahic covenant. <laughs> Well, the rainbow used to mean that, okay? And I like that interpretation of the rainbow helmet. Thank you. Third, the institutional form of this preservation is the state. This Luther can say in his 1530 to 1531 lectures on Ecclesiastes, quote, where there is a state, a miracle takes place, unquote. And again, quote, there is nothing greater on the whole earth than a state, unquote. If we are to give to this gracious ordinance of God its proper theological locus, it is important to note something implied already 
in the first two points, namely that for Luther, the state is not an order of creation, but an emergency order evoked by the fall. Before the fall, the state was not needed. I'm on page 17 now. As originally created, man was in harmony with God. He allowed himself to be ruled by the, quote, moving of one finger, unquote. It was only after he turned from God that he refused to be guided by such easy means. Only then did he have to be brought to heel by force. Hence, the state is simply the institutionalized form of God's call to order. It is a remedy required by our corrupted nature, for it is necessary that lust be held in check by the bonds of the laws and by the penalties, lest it riot in freedom. This is why the state by rights must be called a kingdom of sin, for its theme is nothing but sin and the checking of sin. We may thus say that for Luther, the state is a gracious intervention of God, which puts a stop to the self-destruction of the fallen world with a view to giving men a kairos and bringing them to the last day. It is an awful remedy by which harmful limbs are cut off that the rest may be preserved. Thus, the state is to be understood theologically in terms of its function within salvation history, and hence as an ordination of God. Fourth, there is yet a further thought in Luther, however, which seems to stand in tension with this inclusion of the state in salvation history. That is his view that the governing of the state is entrusted to human reason. Okay, let's pause right there. How are you doing on this? Hanging in there? We're talking about theological foundations of the concept of authority in government. And when you're talking about theology, you, there's categories of the doctrines, creation, fall, redemption, eschatology salvation is in there so he's locating uh through luther the the protestant reformer luther the uh the idea that the order that we're familiar with the authority that comes from government per se is or is in government per se is uh, an ordinance of God, and it, the governing of the state is a trust entrusted to human reason. What is it about human reason that adds to this notion of authority? I want you to think about that question. Let's go back to Telica. To formulate this point more sharply in relation to our problem, God seems indeed 
to ordain the state in a highly personal way. Having once done so, however, he decides not to provide further directives on which the state might be dependent in theocratic fashion. Instead, he delegates, as it were, all responsibility for its further course to human reason and therewith to man. <laughs> in, the, in the margin I have, yikes, Franz Lau has rightly pointed out that it is not the orders and their ratio, but man and his ratio, which provide the criterion whereby the orders are measured. <clears throat> I'm going to read a footnote, footnote 19. God made the secular government subordinate and subject to reason because it is to have no jurisdiction over the welfare of souls or things of eternal value, but only over physical and temporal goods, which God places under man's dominion. Quoting or commenting on Genesis 2, 8 and following. I think that's a quote from Luther. Okay. Thus, if Luther speaks of reason as being fully adequate for the state and its affairs, this is not to say that the state has fallen, has, sorry, within itself. This is not to say that the state has within itself an imminent law from which political affairs may be automatically and autonomously derived and directed. For Luther, the state is not a law unto itself. Very important. The state is not a law unto itself, but only a form whereby the relations of man to man are regulated. The regulating is entrusted to the reason and rational decisions of man not to the imminent reason of an order. <clears throat> this is some technical German stuff going on here, just FYI, that we, we don't need to get into, but I'm hoping that you get the flavor for this. Because Luther thinks in terms of the person rather than the institution, and accordingly uses a personalistic personalistically determined concept of reason, he has no explicit doctrine of the state. His theme is not the institution as such, but man as he relates to his neighbor within the framework of the institution. Hence, when Luther speaks in this context of reason, what he means is not some law of reason imminent in the institution, but the responsibly used reason of persons. Since government is tied not to theocratic behavior, uh, directives, but to the rational judgment of man, Christians are not the only ones qualified for political office. It is enough for a ruler if he has reason. Indeed, pagans can sometimes be better rulers than Christians. 
page 18. With these considerations, we seem to have arrived at a first crucial point in our attempt to construct a theological line from Luther's concept of authority to the situation of the modern democracy. When Luther speaks about delegating governmental affairs to reason, he is unquestionably thinking, in accordance with his concept of authority, of the reason of the emperor or the prince or of the magistrates appointed by them. But we surely do no violence to Luther's intentions if we say that the important thing is not so much who the office holder is, who exercises his reason, but the fact that it is the reason of the man that is being exercised. The accent is not so much on the person ruling as on the assertion that the state is not ruled theocratically by God. The gospel is not a code of statecraft. Statecraft is a matter of reason and accordingly delegated to reason. So there you go. There's there's a way to criticize the state if it's not reasonable, if it's if it doesn't um if it fails in its argument, you might say. If it commits logical fallacies. The person, the person deciding this what they're doing and why. Or if they rule by propaganda as we'll see, which is what the totalitarians do. Well, that's where we're headed here. It's a it's a a cudgel to get in there some objective basis to critique government action. By the way, critic critique can be positive, it can be negative. If I give you compliments, I'm critiquing. A lot of people forget that. Okay, the gospel is not a code of statecraft, page 18. Statecraft is a matter of reason and is accordingly delegated to reason. The ruler whose reason the state is committed, to whose reason the state is committed, represents human reason in general with its dignity and its limits. This then suggests a line of connection between the order, the older authoritarian state and modern democracy. In both cases, the business of state is delegated to human reason. In one case, of course, it is delegated to the emperor or prince and the other to the citizens. But these are only minor differences within an overarching unity. In both, it is human reason which receives the mandate. I know you're thinking, what could go wrong? <laughs> well, it's a fallen world. But what he's saying here is God thinks this is better than letting us go. This is better than some other alternative. 
which you might say is not saying much, but but there could be a way to critique and distinguish between governments and maybe even types of government. Fifth, I'm on page 19, reason is given a real mandate. What this means may best be seen in terms of the negative possibility that reason will forget or even fail to perceive this mandate. In such a case, according to Luther, reason loses the criterion of its competence. Instead of being a reason which receives, hearing and accepting a mandate, in the sense of blah, 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 skipping that Latin word, it becomes a reason which acts on its own. The arrogance of this self-authorization of reason is that it tries to fix the basis, goal, and meaning of all that is. It gives birth to worldviews and other ultimate values together with their symbols instead of carrying through its intellectual acts only on the basis which is allotted to it in relation to the goal which is set for it and in the name of the meaning which is proclaimed to it. In the sphere of political ethics, this arrogance finds expression in the fact that reason does not receive the miracle of the state from the hand of God and then admit, um, administer it in terms of the mandate it has received. Instead, reason imagines that it produced produces the state itself and that the state therefore rests on the insight and resolve of reason. For example, on a contract. Now, all of that was criticizing social contract theory as the ultimate basis for the state. Like modern philosophy and political philosophy is said to do. Um, there's no contract. There's no contract. There's no social contract. That's just a, a myth. That's a, that's a story that people say. It's like a bedtime story. Um, and he even calls it arrogant to think that that's the basis of the authority of the state. Luther is convinced that of itself, reason is blind to the true nature of the state, which consists in its function in salvation history and is therefore not immediately apparent but must be proclaimed and believed. Reason then is not competent to fix the meaning of the state or to work out a metaphysics of the state. That could only lead it to pride and idolatry. Its task rather is simply to administer that which it has received as its mandate and to do so according to its own best judgment, according to equity by a natural sense of justice as the times and circumstances demand. You might think that that's a little bit vague, but there's a lot there that packs a punch. He's really talking about natural law and you can miss it and you can arrive at it. 
there is a difference between um, a bad government action, a good government action. It is articulable. I think it's articulable in just about every Second Amendment uh, decision we've covered, for example, on this podcast, uh, between the correct answer and the the incorrect answer. It's it's discernible um, by reasoning. Um, and any in any number of uh, cases too. Sometimes it's hard to tell, even though people do their best. Um, okay, so Tilika continues. So must it go about its task of rewarding the good and punishing the evil? Well, that means you have to know what good and evil are, and you have to admit that good and evil exist. There's a real difference between good and evil. It's not just whatever you want. That would be arrogant. That would be pride. It must go about its task of rewarding the good and punishing the evil. That's echoing the language of Romans 13, if you recall. Uh, seeking good government and establishing proper order. In the language of Tillich, one might say that what is involved here is not ontological reason, but technical reason. Well, I don't know if I agree with that. Reason thus remains within its limits only when it accepts its purpose as something assigned to it, and when it knows its autonomy to be purely a technical autonomy in relation to the filling of that purpose. Well, one way to cabin that in a way I think that that's helpful and true would be to say that the mandate that God has given government is not everything under the sun. It's it's not go and regulate everything. It's limited. It's limited. And what are the limits of that? Now, in our constitutional republic, the theory is that the people in history have spoken in an authoritative way through the Declaration of Independence, creating the United States uh, through an act of rebellion. Um, but uh, not not just a rebellion for rebellion's sake, but a rebellion based in reason, in substantial sense of natural justice, uh, to punish the evil and reward the good. In other words, to rebel against the tyrant and uh, to establish something better. Um, and in the case of the Constitution. Um, exercising discretion to reserve um, rights that the government cannot touch. In other words, um, assigning the good uh, within the discretion of the people in a number of areas, for example, speech, press, uh, peaceable assembly, um, privacy in your home, 
uh, bearing of arms for self-defense, um, both at home and in public, um, being free from unreasonable searches and seizures and requiring the government to um, restrict searches and seizures on articulable probable cause um, produced by a writ from a neutral arbitrator, someone who's not involved in the dispute, okay? And so on and so forth, the Bill of Rights, okay? Not to mention the separation of powers, which the whole point of that is to protect individual liberty. The idea would be that the state does not have a mandate from God to do evil, but to, uh, to do good and to reward good and to punish evil. So when restricting the state from becoming evil itself, that's the point of separation of powers. Now, obviously, Tilika isn't going all that into that, but that's my reading of this. That's my transformative reading of Tilika here. Luther expresses this clearly in his doctrine of the two kingdoms. The fact that historical and rational considerations are normative in the worldly kingdom does not mean that this fear on the left hand is emancipated from the will and commandments of God and given over instead to reason. On the contrary, reason is understood here too as being altogether a received organ to which the norms and purposes of secular action are committed and which has then to exercise its technical autonomy only in deciding on the means to achieve the goals transmitted to it. The norms and purposes consist in the fact that the worldly kingdom is linked to the kingdom on the right hand and thereby integrated into salvation history in two ways. First, the preservation of the world through the state is not an end in itself, but only a means to secure for man a new time of grace. Um, so could we have public holidays, for example, that this is a First Amendment issue, the, the Establishment Clause, could we have um, Christmas holidays that are state-recognized, uh, Easter holiday that's state-recognized, Thanksgiving, that means Thanksgiving to God, um, recognizing July 4th as um, uh, celebrating the Declaration of Independence, which, which refers to God four times. Um, what about Memorial Day? What about, um, you know, what about um, buildings, public buildings? Can we have the Christmas, not only the Christmas tree, 
but the nativity scene on a government building? Could we have a display of the Ten Commandments in public, at public expense? Or crosses on government property? These are all issues that have been litigated. And what he's saying here is that the authority of the state is not to transgress or contradict um, facts of salvation, relevant to salvation. It's really to support that, right? The state is not an end in itself, only as a means to secure for man a new time of grace. And second, I'm obligated to discharge my secular office in the name of love, not with reference to an institution, which is an end in itself, but with reference to my neighbor. Fascinating. The secular task is thus committed to us by God, and its accomplishment ultimately serves his ends. It provides us with our physical existence as the necessary presupposition for hearing his word, inheriting his kingdom, and thus fulfilling the real purpose of our lives. Christians and pagans thus have something in common, but there is also a difference. Common to them is the fact that they have received on the subjective side reason and on the objective institutional side, the state. The difference is that the pagan does not perceive the efficient and final cause of the state, whereas the Christian does and because of that knowledge stands under a claim and obligation. Sixth, if we apply to the theological understanding of democracy all that we have just said about reason receiving a mandate, we reach the following result. Democracy in these terms must mean that the citizens indeed control the state with their will and in virtue of the insight of their reason, but only in the sense that the state is placed under the control of their will and reason. Emphasis on placed, placed there by God. Reason does not in and of itself concoct the idea of the state. Neither does it produce the state. For example, in the form of a rational agreement or contract. There he goes again, criticizing social contract. On the contrary, it receives both. Its task is simply to make the most of what it has received within the limits of its own judgment to develop it as best it can. This is the decisive point where the line of the older authoritarian state and that of the modern democracy intersect. Hence, it is not necessary that we do away altogether with the statements of Paul and Luther concerning, concerning the state, as might at first glance seem to be indicated by the words of Wingren. Our task, rather, 
is rather to deinstitutionalize them. The authoritarian state, in terms of which Paul and Luther developed their view, is to be understood simply as a historical, historically conditioned example. The purely illustrative nature of their particular example is shown by the fact that all the theological teachings associated with it can be transferred without difficulty to other kinds of state. Theirs is simply one of a variety of forms which the state has taken and may take. The totalitarian state alone departs from this pattern, and in doing so, shows that theologically it is no longer a state, but a pseudo a pseudo church. I'm going to read that last part again. The totalitarian state alone departs from this pattern, and in doing so shows that theologically it is no longer a state, but a pseudo-church. That's the last sentence in his chapter 2 on page 21. Um, so that's where he's headed. Is Now, I'm going to make a comment here about American politics, and since we had President's Day this week, I'm going to apply this to the idea of President's Day and what President's Day is and should be about. So if you missed it for this last time because you didn't see my my writing on this, well, next year you we can talk about this and you, you can incorporate this into your President's Day next year. But uh, there is a natural tendency toward bad government. And the framers, I think, um, of the Constitution and the founders of the United States uh, did, a, in certain respects, did an excellent job at building into the design um, breaks on the downward slide into totalitarianism that is inherent in government. And um, they did this on the basis of just paying attention, like general revelation, I would say. You might say reason, but um, studying it like a science almost. I don't mean science in the sense of chemistry or anything. I just mean paying attention you know, noticing patterns and looking for rules that seem to be an effect of governments and people. And um, I do think that there is a threat of a totalitarian government, and I think it comes from people in power as well as the people, um, the, the people themselves. Um, and I think the, the drama of his, of American politics is about that issue. It's about 
stemming the tide or reversing decay um, toward totalitarian government, which he says is just really a pseudo church. And those are comments that we'll get to next time. As far as President's Day, well, let me uh, make some comments about President's Day. If you've never read Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, which created the presidency out of nothing, ex nihilo, you should do that. Some President's Day, you should do that. And maybe just take a clause at a time. Take the vesting clause, for example. That's the first clause. The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. What's the executive power? Can you answer that question? How is the executive power distinguished from the legislative power? How is the legislative power and the judicial power distinguished from the executive power? How many, according to this clause, how many people have the executive power at one time? Let me quote the quote it again. The executive power shall be vested in President of the United States of America. I'm sharing my screen now. The executive power, what does that mean? This is the Substack post on sub Republican Professor, Substack.com. Here's a little quiz. The executive power, what does that mean? Be comprehensive and specific. Give a comprehensive definition that abstractly includes all executive power action and excludes non-executive power action, along with several examples. In other words, what power is that? How is it distinguished from legislative powers herein granted in Article 1, Clause 1, and the judicial power in Article 3, Clause 1? This power is vested, but vested by whom in the president? Who has the power to vest the president with this executive power? How many people have this power at one time? How many people work for the federal government in the executive branch? How many of them have the executive power according to the Constitution? If a president was mentally unfit and was actually not running things, not exercising executive power over the administrative state of the executive branch, and yet the administrative state was functioning anyway, then what might that mean as far as who has the executive power in reality, in actuality, apart from what the Constitution says should happen? Why is this clause in the Constitution? For what moral or normative purpose politically? What part of the Federalist Papers discusses this clause? And I say, if you can't answer these questions accurately, completely, thoroughly, clearly, concisely, in a non-BS kind of way, then it would be a good task for you to undertake on some President's Day, sometime in your life, 
unless you want to continue on as an American doofus. That's just one clause in Article 2. I think this is a nice way to spend a small part of President's Day looking into this. What do I say about this? There's one president. One person has the executive power at a time. Not the branch. A person has it. The reason it's in there is because of personal responsibility for energy, secrecy, dispatch, for responsibility, knowing who to blame when things go wrong and who to praise when things go right. If you got a bunch of people doing stuff, who do you point the finger at when things go wrong? Who do you praise when things go right? If one person is in charge, then that person is responsible for everything. That's the design in the Constitution. And the reason it's there is it's part of the separation of powers. You got to clearly establish execution in terms of the executive power from making law and from interpreting it and applying it. Because the concept of tyranny is that all of those powers are combined in one person and one sim and the assumption is we're sinful. And that's bad to have all those powers because people cannot handle that. So it's it's best because of the sinful nature of our our condition, because of the fall. We have separation of powers that protects individual liberty. So a little bit of a comment on President's Day. I want to thank Helmut Tilica for being a guest on the Republican Professor podcast. Thank you, Helmut. I enjoyed hearing from you. I hope you did too. He's very insightful. And for more information on who he was as a person, a little bit of his career, see uh, the last episode where we talked about uh, you know, his comments, his life in Germany, what he lived through and um, what he had occasion to think about theologically. And I'll see you, if you want to subscribe to the Republican Professor on Substack, I I invite you to, if you want to support the podcast. Uh, The podcast is on Venmo at Republican Professor. Uh, Send something in there. It helps us keep going. All right. We'll see you next time. God bless.